This is Car Expert. People might be willing to take a chance on Alfa Romeo because this car is so well priced and it has a form factor that they're looking for. To take this step backwards when EV sales are just ramping up, uh, it just doesn't compute in my brain. The Defender, it has that really effortless, talky inline six engine that at one point Paul just said it's like there's nothing on the back driving up the hill, which is not something he said about many other cars. Welcome to this week's podcast. Hello, James Wong. Hello, hello. And hello, Jack Quick. Hey there, Mandy. Been a big week for Kia in terms of uh, news stories, Jack. Um, and you're just sort of biting at the bit to, or chomping at the bit, I should say, <laughs> to talk about them. What's been going on in the world of Kia? Well, there's definitely been a lot happening in the world of Kia. So I um, I went to an event uh, last week uh, with Kia Australia up in Sydney and um, it was basically just like a news event where they got all a whole heap of journalists together and had a bit of a, a roundtable discussion about what's happening because in all honesty, there's nothing really happening right now for Kia currently. There's a lot of stuff uh, happening really soon towards the end of the year. So just kind of, I suppose, building hype towards those things happening in the later later in the year. Um, but from this event last week, I got a total of 13 stories from the one event, which is absolutely oh crazy. God. I was, um, I've, I felt like that meme where I'm like crazily typing <laughs> at the computer or like banging my head head against the wall, like just trying to get the stories out. I wrote, um, I know that this is not necessarily something to be proud of, but I wrote um, eight stories in one day, which I was um, excited for and I felt like yeah, I just- you be proud did, of that. Did, that's that's, a, that's yeah. a big undertaking. That's I, um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it, it definitely felt like a lot too, but um, they had a, Kia had a lot to say, although they didn't have not, anything to really present at the event, but a few of the highlights um, include um, this new ute, the new Kia Ute that we've probably talked about on the podcast before. Finally. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Finally. Um, from There was a recent report that this Ute could be called the Tasman, so it could be getting a really Australian name, um, which is really cool. And uh, at the event, Kia had uh, grand uh, sales claims uh, for this Ute. They, they have said they want to own about 10% of the like commercial vehicle segment, which would mean it, it, like it outsells the likes of like the Nissan Navara and the D-Max. From memory, I think it's about uh, if, if, they, if Kia wants 10% of the Ute market, um, they're going to have to sell 20,000 examples of this Tasman, so-called Tasman ute. So that's a, a huge thing, especially for Kia, given it's a first ute. Um, but uh, they did say uh, that they're not not looking at um, an SUV version of the this ute on the same body-on-frame platform. So they're not looking at the likes of like an Everest rival. But they um, Kia did say, drop a little hint to say, um, that it is that it would like to potentially look at a performance version of this Ute, so it could be like a a Ranger Raptor rival. At the event, it got brought up more or less jokingly than anything, but they were like, um, "Oh, what about like a, a Stinger powered Ute? That would that would be very cool." And they didn't necessarily say no, so I suppose that in a way that kind of bodes well. But in all honesty, I don't know if that is the exact form a performance Ute could take. It could be off road focused or it could be just unfortunately a sticker pack which is what's happened with another yeah <laughs> that'd be quite unfortunate but um yeah. beyond all this ute stuff i got an absolute bucket lo- bucket load of stuff including um when some facelifts and update updated models are arriving including um the an updated picanto and updated uh sorrento they're both due in the fourth quarter of um this year and then i, I also uh got conf- uh, confirmation of when the sportage hybrid is arriving which is what um james had previously reported uh, it's in the 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 first quarter of next year and uh from memory i think they're targeting um roughly uh i want to say 200 units of that per month which is better than other hybrids and plug-in hybrids uh supply of those models and kia has had previously um 
Beyond that, I also got uh, the Kia only has 150 examples of the Stinger. As you would know, uh, Kia is no longer taking uh, orders of that model and all of the, the these 150 that are left, they, everyone has a na- their name beside that. So that's it. We're not getting the Tribute Edition and um, the Performance Halo is getting pushed towards um, the EV6 GT. Um but yeah, one of the stories that got the, the most traction that I wasn't really expecting it to was um, uh, Damien Meredith, the recently appointed um, CEO of Kia Australia. He was the COO previously. He um, we got brought up about plug-in hybrids, whether plug-in hybrid technology is a dead end. And he just said, yes, it basically is Un- and uh, and then a few more conversations came about where I said it's a really hard technology to educate consumers about. And um, but regardless, um, Kia only has uh, one plug-in hybrid it sells in Australia at the moment, and that is um, the Sorento Fev. But you can't even order one because supply was so bad. It uh, maxed out at about ten units per month when they're on sale um, last year. But um, even though they said uh, plug-in hybrid technologies are dead end, they're not looking to get rid of that model at the moment. So um, it's an interesting interesting po- uh, point. And that uh, story got picked up by a few overseas outlets, which I found to be quite exciting nice. and um, boosted the views of that story for me. So I'll pat myself on the back for that one. <laughs> Can I quickly jump in on this topic specifically? Because I'm sort of I'm, I'm somebody that is one of the few that really campaigns for Fev Tech, and I find it quite interesting when some of these mainstream brands make these comments because you know you use the example of Kia, and they're not alone in having a number of options available, but then they either can't supply many, if at all, to the market, or they just don't bring them in whatsoever. There are plug-in hybrid versions of several of their models that they don't bring here. And when they have brought it here, the Sorento plug-in hybrid was maxing out at 10, 15 units a month, which is next to nothing when you think about the kind of volumes that some other brands are doing in terms of electrified take-up. So in terms of what the growth of the different technologies are, I sometimes question the validity behind quoting the EV take up because if you discount Tesla, the growth is not that much, and and it's, it really just comes down to what people can bring in. And I, I, saying it's not that much is probably a bit of a stretch, but it's not as it's not that much more in terms. It's starting off a low base, and then you know Tesla only recently started reporting its numbers, and they're by far and away the the leader. So if every brand was to bring more of these electrified options, you'd see take up across the board. And I think that it's it's a lot of it still comes down to supply and the fact that we just don't have the emissions regulations that require it. And therefore, a lot of the local divisions have to come up with their own stories as to why. And, you know, they'll say, it was disappointing for me to hear Kia say that it's too hard to educate, where it's like, you guys are a mainstream brand. You're meant to be able to bring people in and tell people how to use stuff. What happens when someone comes in and wants an EV6 or when the EV9 comes in? They're going to have to learn how to charge it. It's the same thing. Mitsubishi does it. Um, a lot of the European brands have been able to bring in plug-in hybrid tech and then graduate into EV tech and educate their customer base or the customers educate themselves. So I think that's not really my favorite way of looking at it, especially when we're our, our, pub, our buying public is crying out for ways to reduce their emissions and increase their electrified vehicle uptake. And if brands are starting to take away options because they say it's too hard, I understand there's investment in homologation and all that kind of thing to bring a vehicle to market. But you know, if, if they're bringing only a handful of vehicles a month, you know, we sell, you know, May we saw over 100,000 units brought into the into the market and registered uh, just in that month alone. And when some brands are only bringing in double-digit numbers of hybrid and electric vehicles, how is that going to really solve the problem that we have when the bulk of our volume is still, you know, diesel and petrol-only fired cars? So, I don't know. I still take issue with that when, when some brands say it's too hard to educate the customer. It's like you're, it's your job. You're selling them something. You need to, they either need to learn how to use it or you need to show them. Interesting points you make there, Joe. If, uh, if you're listening and, and have some further things to say about that, uh, send us an email, podcast at carexpert.com.au. In the meantime, let's go to some non-Kia news now. Jack, the 2024 Lexus GX has been revealed. I'm not sure how I feel about this. It's like part of me where I like it and part of me where I don't. 
Yeah, right. I um, I personally, I'm quite obsessed with it. <laughs> this is <laughs> completely different, uh, whatever, to what I remember talking about the BMW, the new BMW 5 Series not that long ago and saying how much I just really couldn't care less about it. This I'm absolutely obsessed with. I know that... Um, you obviously might know that I uh, own a Jimny and I love the boxiness and whatnot. And I think this is quite an exciting thing, especially because a lot of manufacturers are going down uh, sleek and aerodynamic looking vehicles. I think that this boxy um, Lexus GX, the new generation Lexus GX looks absolutely awesome. And better yet, it's expected to be coming to Australia so um, Lexus made these uh, uh, grand clam claims, um, grand claims, grand, uh, grand claims a couple of months ago <laughs> um, that they're bringing uh, three new models uh, to Australia in new segments, as I think the wording that Lexus went with, uh, by mid-2024. And um, one of these is confirmed to be uh, that LM people mover, that Alphard based um, people mover and the other two that we don't know up until this point but one of them is expected to be this new generation gx which is quite exciting so um this uh this new generation model is based on the um the same uh, platform as the the new land cruiser 300 series so it's that tnga f the body on frame platform uh, and this model is slightly smaller than the Lexus LX, which is obviously the, the Lexus version of the Land Cruiser 300 series. Now, at launch, the Lexus GX um, is powered by a 3-litre petrol V6 engine producing uh, 260 kilowatts of power and 650 newton metres of torque. If you cast your mind back, you remember you might remember that the previous generation GX, which is essentially a dressed-up Land Cruiser Prado, was available um, only in the US and a few other export markets exclusively, from my understanding, with a V8 engine. So this is a, a huge change for that particular model. And I remember um, also that the Tundra went through um, a similar thing where it went from the, the V8 to the V6. So it's, although it's a big thing, it's not uncommon, unfortunately. It's sad to see that, but anyway. Um, now, Lexus has confirmed that there is going to be hybrid power for this new GX, um, but it won't be at launch. And from my understanding, it's expected to be a very similar hybrid setup um, to the RX500H uh, performance so that with the 2.4 liter um, turbo petrol engine and uh, the hybrid system and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, now, it's a few little bits about this new GX. It comes with a full-time four-wheel drive system, a low low range transfer case, and a, a locking a center re, a locking center differential, I should say. Now, um. This uh, new GX is available in a whole range of different uh, variants and specifications, but the one I'm most excited for is the top spec um, Overland, from what I understand is what it's um, over trail is what I should call it. Um, and it comes with this uh, huge 33-inch uh, wheels that make it look super-duper tough. looks really nice with the, the boxy frame and whatnot. And now the Overtrail in particular adds um, a locking rear differential as well in addition to a locking center differential. A differential. Yeah, as I mentioned, there are plenty of variants and you can kind of go for the, the subtle city look, which is where I imagine a lot of these buyers will be getting the <laughs> So you can go super swish and fancy, but then you can also can go super crazy off-road spec with this GX, which is very exciting. It's kind of like a – it's kind of the, the perfect Defender rival in a way. Um, but I want to know, James and Mandy, what are your thoughts on the, the new GX? I know that you weren't a huge fan, Mandy, but what are your, what are your thoughts, James? Um, I really like it. So, like Jack, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it because they issued out a couple of teaser images in the lead up to the reveal and it had elements that were sort of very, there was sort of Land Cruiser in, they sort of weren't. And I think that they've done a really good job at giving it a really, you, it's got that very Defender, Discovery or even G-Wagon look about it, but it's very distinctly Lexus in the in the design details and things like that. And they've just done a really great job. I, I love the look of it. I think it will be a very, very successful product for them. And I think what's really exciting as well is what it means for not just Lexus potentially bringing this to Australia, but what it means for the next Prado because the GX has always been a, you know, Lexus's alternative, Lexus's version of the Prado, much like how the LX is to the Land Cruiser 300. And for both Lexus and Toyota, the Prado and GX have been a bit more of a global product than the 300 series and LX. So you'll probably see 
the GX perhaps be the Land Cruiser-esque offering in Europe, especially once the hybrid becomes available, if they choose to do that. And same goes for the Prado. And given we've seen the the amount of developments and, and upgrades that the 300 series went through over the 200, we're seeing a similar level of this with the, the GX and potentially the Prado. But in terms of just how much it's grown, how much more power these cars make because of the new engines and all that kind of stuff. It seems like Toyota and Lexus are really throwing all they have at it. And even just to offer this overtrail version, which is completely wild for Lexus to offer anything of this type with the all-terrain tires, the lift kit, the funny colors. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a really, really cool thing. So if, if they can bring it here and also around the world for a good price, I imagine that there are a lot of people that don't, want to spend up or don't necessarily like the look of the LX. It's very, you know, Range Rovery, but still very square and a bit, you know, some of the higher models with that really big grill at the front are a bit garish. Whereas this can be really refined, really rugged, but it has a really nice, tasteful look about it. And I think the interior space should be much improved. It offers five, six, and seven seat configurations, at least in the US. We don't know what we'll get here if it comes here. And then having that option of hybrid power is um, quite exciting because we don't really have a lot of rugged off-roaders that have this kind of fuel-saving tech that will come into play around town. I think uh, that the Toyota Tacoma, which is meant to be the US relative to the Hilux has done a similar job to the GX in previewing what's coming for local product. And I think if we can get a Prado and a Hilux in the next generation on this new platform, which brings a whole wealth of new technology across the board for for both Hilux and Prado, as well as these new powertrains that potentially are not just more powerful, but also significantly more efficient and, and nicer to use day to day. I think that it, we've been waiting a long time because the Prado and Hilux are, you know, over 10 years old at this point and the platform probably dates back longer. But I think there's some really exciting things coming out of these two brands and I just hope that they, they come here at, in good numbers and for the right price because they're, it, it will answer a question that a lot of people have been wanting answered for a long time. Yeah. All right. Well, from boxy to sexy, we've got some photos of the new Porsche EV hypercar, j Oh, my goodness. I like this. Yes. Yeah, see, I don't necessarily find this quite as sexy as you, Mandy, but I think it's a very interesting <laughs> a very interesting uh, change up to what we were just talking about before. So, Porsche is uh, celebrating its 75th anniversary this year, which is a very big milestone. And there's been a couple of things like a revised badge, which wasn't that revised or <laughs> it's, it's just flat. <laughs> and they've also revealed this which is called the mission x so porsche's done a couple of really cool concepts that have made production in recent times notably the mission e which then became the Taycan. and so this is the preview at what potentially could make into production as a successor to the hybrid n not n18 918 spider i don't even know where i got the n from so porsche's pulled the covers off this car that basically looks like a road going version of one of its le mans races one of their lm prototypes that porsche's been very successful with over the years and it will be an all-electric car that will have a projected power to weight ratio of one PS or horsepower per kilogram, which is significantly more than the recently released 911 GT3 RS. It will also have a 900 volt electrical architecture that will charge at least twice as quickly as the current Taycan Turbo S, which I think that it can do about 350 kilowatt or 400 kilowatt car charging as it is. So there's not a whole lot of detail in terms of you know, what powers it and all that kind of stuff. But the big claim here is that Porsche wants to take the all-electric lap record around the Nürburgring, which is very typical of some of these brands. They're just chasing faster times and whatever. And I think in a world where hypercars are increasingly becoming electrified, this this new one um, definitely looks like a, a view into what could come. In terms of the design, it's, it's sort of a bit of a departure from the current Porsche range. It doesn't have v- particularly round headlights. The It doesn't have the humpy or the, the bumpy rear that a lot of Porsches are known for. It definitely looks like a, a road-going race car, much more like, you know, the Mercedes-AMG 1 or the Aston Martin Valkyrie. And it's got 20-inch wheels at the front, 21-inch wheels at the rear on Michelin Cup 2 uh, tires. The rear tires are six centimeters wider than the front, so this thing has quite a bit of stance. It's definitely got like race car proportions. What do you guys think about it? Because I know Mandy said she thinks it's really cool. The the interior is a very impressive uh, shade of brown with some almost watch-like details and very fancy switch gear on that um, racing car steering wheel. But given we don't know a whole lot about 
it yet given it's a concept. What do you guys think about what it looks like now and, and whether it'll make a production? I am. Um, I think it's quite nice. I um, it's obviously like as you mentioned, James. It's a, obviously a concept right now, but I, I'd love to see how much of this carries over to the production model if if that is actually going to happen. Because um, I knew that you you'd mentioned the the brown interior, James, and. Uh, <laughs> Um, I think that that particular is really futuristic and um, it, it stands out as one of the, 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 the craziest elements about this car because I'm not necessarily wild about the exterior. It's just a little bit – I understand it's like sleek and whatnot, but it just kind of doesn't really do anything for, for me in particular. But like, I know that I, I come from saying that the Lexus GX is boxy and crazy and I love that. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, this this I'm very excited to see what – what Porsche does with this in particular, but um, yeah, I, I just have to wait and see, I suppose. Hmm. All right, let's talk about some government things, shall we? Uh, this is actually no yeah. surprise given the debt that Victoria is in at the moment, but uh, the government has ditched the EV subsidy, Jack. So, yeah, the Victorian government has uh, uh, ditched uh, the $3,000 EV uh, purchase subsidy um, from uh, June 30. So it's still a couple of weeks away, but it's looming over us, unfortunately. So um, this bit of information was subtly slipped into uh, the May, uh, May budget papers. So it's been around for a little bit while, a uh, little while now, but no one really picked up on it until now. So that's how sneaky, I suppose, the Victorian government was about uh, ditching this uh, particular subsidy program. Um, now, the Victorian government has said that uh, it's kind of danced around the subject, but it said that it's cutting it due to lower than expected uptake of um, this uh, particular subsidy. Um, when it was announced in uh, – the program was announced in 2021, there were uh, roughly 20,000 spots available. And of, as of right now, there are roughly around 2,700 spots remaining in this particular program. It's, if it's getting rid of this um, EV subsidy, it also has the EV road tax. So like you, you have to pay to drive your electric vehicle or plug-in hybrid vehicle on the roads in Australia, which makes sense obviously with the, the fuels, um, fuel excise and all that kind of fun stuff. But Victoria is the only state to, to have this kind of uh, road tax as of right now. But it, it's kind of frame, forming the Victoria almost doesn't want EVs. I um, I understand that Victoria has a huge COVID debt to pay back because we were the, the obviously the, the, one of the states in the world to have the longest lockdown and there's obviously a lot of money to recoup from that. But um, it wasn't that long ago. The Queensland, I think it was Queensland, anyway, just announced that it was doubling its EV subsidy from uh, 3000 to 6000 So, to take this step backwards when EV sales are just ramping up, uh, it just doesn't compute in my brain. Yeah, what do you think, James? Uh, it was very disappointing to hear this the other day and it's definitely not the kind of thing that I would have been implementing. I think there's so many other ways that the government can cut its spending and try to increase revenue and I think trying to almost disincentivize the uptake of low emissions vehicles, which at the end of the day is an investment in our future as a nation. Like we, as globally, all nations are trying to reduce its envi their environmental impacts collectively so that we can have, you know, surety about what our environment and planet will look like in the future. And I'm not advocating for Greenpeace and I'm not one of these like hippies or whatever that's saying that climate change is here and we need to stop everything now and whatever. But I think that as, as a younger person that thinks about, you know, what our lives will look like in decades time, I think we have, it's important to know that we're all working towards something here and, you know, carbon emissions from vehicles on the road is a very big problem. And it's something that we've been trying to curb for a long time. We've, you know, a lot of manufacturers are trying to come to the table with offering us options, limited, I will say, in some, in, in many cases. But the reason why Europe and other developed nations have been so successful in, in reducing their carbon footprint and emissions levels is because they have strict laws and incentives around getting the public into these cars. And so, the more and more that we see these incentives go away or these strategies either become stillborn or not implemented or whatever, it just means that we're continuing to limit opportunities for people to make 
cleaner decisions around their transport. And I know that there are a lot of people that would consider things if there was some sort of, because at the moment, the, the, the cheapest electric vehicle in Australia is a little over $40,000, which for, for a lot of us is attainable. For a lot of people who work in relatively high paying corporate jobs and can get a good lease on it and, you know, take advantage of um, the fringe benefits, tax relief and things like that makes sense. And if you can get an incentive, even better. But for a lot of people, that's still well out of reach. And if you're, if you're still wanting people to not be left behind, you have to be give, give people the opportunity to take a chance and incentivize it. Otherwise, they're just going to keep going with what they know. And I just, I just don't see the, the, the good enough a good enough explanation as to why this is the case for Victoria when, you know, like you said, Queensland's doubled its spending on this kind of initiative and Queensland was likewise in lockdown for a long time. New South Wales incentivizes it much better. And so, you know, Victoria likes to pitch itself as one of the more progressive states in Australia and this is one of the most regressive policies or, you know, initiatives that it's taken with regards to this specifically, uh, which is really disappointing. So, you know, I hope that there is something that, comes into change because this uh, road user tax, for example, is just penalizing people for driving electrified cars that plug in and there's no real um, benefit to driving one. Say if we had cheaper rego, for example, or better, you know, a framework which while there are still charges that you need to pay to do your part, there are still breaks from other things that make the switch from petrol or diesel to plug-in hybrid or electric a little bit more feasible or attractive to you. That makes a lot more sense. I guess that there are still people that can take advantage of the fringe benefits tax relief for plug-in hybrid and electric vehicles at the moment. But still, it's, it seems ridiculous that you could jump over the Murray and go into, the, and go into New South Wales and get a subsidy as well as fringe benefits tax relief as well as a few other incentives that help you move into the electrified motoring era. And then you come back here and there's nothing. If anything, you're taxed more for it. So I think that that's a really bad decision on the Victorian government's part. And I think that's a, it's going to be really annoying for a lot of motorists that were perhaps in Victoria considering a plug-in hybrid or electric vehicle in the next six to 12 months. Yeah, doesn't does not make sense at all. And our last story, uh, Volvo has added another EV to their lineup, JWO. Yes. So this one's very exciting because instead of going further up the range, they've actually revealed something that's now their most affordable electric vehicle. So the EX30 has been in, I'll say in the works for a while, but you know we've been hearing about it and it's been teased several times in the lead up to its reveal this week. And it's basically Volvo's smallest and also the quickest vehicle it's made <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. So while the base model is not the fastest car that it makes, there is a top spec all-wheel drive dual motor one that is basically faster than an Audi RS3. So the top of the range model can actually sprint from zero to 100 in just 3.6 seconds, which is incredible. And we already have pricing for Australia. So you'll be able to get this performance ultra version, which is faster than most performance cars on the market right now, for sixty nine nine ninety, which is something of a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> so it, the range will start in Australia from fifty nine nine ninety when it arrives later this year, and will climb to sixty nine nine ninety. So even though there are two batteries offered globally, Australia is only getting the sixty nine kilowatt hour long range battery pack. So the, even the rear wheel drive ones are very quick, so they can do five point five seconds zero to one hundred, while the all wheel drive one, as I mentioned earlier, can do three point six seconds. And uh, claim range will be between four hundred and forty kilometers and four hundred and eighty. 460, sorry, for the performance and 480 for the, the rear-wheel drive ones, which is pretty impressive given that the car is only about $60,000. And the in terms of the aesthetic, it's like a little crossover. It seems like it's about the same size as – it's quite short. It's like 4.2 meters long, so it's like a golf-sized crossover. Mm-hmm. So think of it as like an electric T-Rock and – it seems like it'll be well specified as well. Standard equipment in Australia will include everything from your autonomous emergency braking, lane keep assist, blind spot assist, and uh, all of that jazz, as well as a 12.3-inch touchscreen infotainment system, uh, dual-zone climate control. It'll have a leather-free interior as well as a Harman Kardon premium sound system. It's got this funny like sound bar at the front, which I, I watched there. 
Apple-esque unboxing video for the global division on YouTube. And it's actually really interesting. I recommend people go out and watch it if, if you have the time. And their, their CEO goes through all the cool things about the car and there's this massive soundbar because it takes up less space than individual speakers. So they have this massive soundbar at the front of the car under the windscreen, which still fills up <laughs> the interior with sound. And there's a lot of other really oh. clever packaging things that they've done, a lot of sustainable materials used in the interior, a lot of minimalist design touches that help to even though it's such a small car, I think the European media outlets have said it's basically smaller in packaging than a, a Volkswagen ID3, which is a golf-sized car. So think of it; it's it's, a, it's actually quite small, but it will have much more interior space than you expect. So I'm really excited to, about this car. I think it looks great. They haven't mentioned the rugged cross-country one that they revealed at the Global. Uh, launch, which has like all-terrain tires and a jacked-up ride height and uh, blacked out where the fake grill would be, I guess. But I think it looks really cool. And and, and given the pricing, it's it's super sharp. It makes almost makes the Tesla look expensive. But uh, yeah, I'm keen to hear your thoughts. I was nearly said y'all like Will, but <laughs> what, what do you both think? I, I, I really like it. And I think that um, we might see a lot of these on the roads very soon. How, how do you guys feel about it? I think we'll um, we'll also see a fair few of these uh, very very soon from uh, coming this year. So late this year, they're going to be arriving in Australia. So it's not too far away um, at all. And I think I just wanted to reiterate a couple of points that that the, it's smaller. It's a, it's an SUV little crossover, but it's smaller than a Volkswagen ID three and Cooper Born, and they're not big. They're not huge cars. So this is like a a properly small. SUV, so um, very very exciting on, on that front. But uh, I think the, the huge another huge thing for me is obviously the price. I'm particularly interested in the the base model version of this car um, being under sixty thousand dollars. I was going to say um, it'd be very exciting to get the three thousand dollars taken off that, but if you're in Victoria, that <laughs> won't happen. Um, so, but regardless, it's still under sixty grand, which makes it extremely affordable and quite attainable, especially um, I, I would be considering this car. This this is great. I, I love it. I, I wanted to, to go into the interior as well. I know that you mentioned, James, I had that um, Harman Kardon soundbar, but um, there is no digital instrument cluster, very Tesla-like. So everything oh. is um, – on the the central touchscreen, uh, which is like the based on the um, Google uh, Android Automotive, uh, all that fun stuff. But yeah, there's no screen um, ahead of the driver, which is a little bit unfortunate. Um, but I suppose it is what it is. I've driven my partner's Model Three countless times now, and you do get used to it in the end. It's just once you get back into a car with a digital uh, with a cluster ahead of you you kind of have to pretend like remember not to turn your head to be looking at the screen as it's similar in a way i suppose if you're driving like a a very old nissan x trail like an, uh, a toyota echo or prius c like you're forever looking to the center this if you if you get this ex30 um you'll be doing a very similar thing in that on that front but um i'll quickly just go back to how it's so s small i'm really interested to also see what the second row space is like given it's so small i don't imagine there's going to be a lot of space back there. So I imagine this car will be targeted more towards uh, single people or couples, obviously not towards uh, families. Otherwise, it might be, might be a little bit squishy. Um, I'm also inter interested to see what the boot is uh, going to be like. I saw that the, the boot has like a two-tier floor, so it can get a little bit of extra space. But um, I imagine it might be a little bit tight, but yeah, um, regardless, regardless, I'm very excited about this car. I think it's the most exciting Volvo I've seen in a fair while. And I love that it has little bits and pieces that make it still recognizably a Volvo and has bits that are EX90 and all that kind of fun stuff. But yeah, I'm very excited for this car. I just love that soundbar. Why hasn't this happened years and years ago? We've had a soundbar for TV, but this is a brilliant thing it needs to be in every car from this point on now stat <laughs> <laughs> jack stole my thunder i was also going to say which i forgot to say before is that i love that they've managed to shrink down the ex90 stuff but make it like a really sleek and and curvaceous compact car i think that's really sometimes when you see size classes descend uh, transcend segments it, it sometimes can be a little bit awkward but i think they've done a really good job here at making it look cool i just hope that when we see it in person it doesn't look like an egg <laughs> 
<laughs> it is very curvy. Um, you can see more car news at carexpert.com.au. On our next instalment of the gigantic four-wheel drive seven-seat SUV mega test, we do some towing. And Scott Colley is back to tell us which cars nailed and failed it. Hello, Scully. Hello, Mandy. I love the intro there. Nailed and failed is good. We should use that in our next video, I think. <laughs> Send the check my way, please. Um, so how did this all unfold and, and what were the challenges set to these cars? So this was part two of our mega test, uh, followed on from the performance testing and the drag race. And like we did with the Utes, these SUVs went through a couple of challenges. The first was with a three kilowatt dyne trailer on the back, which essentially simulates a really heavy load going up a steep hill and actively breaks the car. Um, And the first test was hitting 90 kilometers an hour and then 100 kilometers an hour. Sounds really simple, but none of the four-cylinder cars made it to 100 kilometers an hour with that load actively pulling them back. And then after that, we did some fuel economy testing and put a 2.8-ton box trailer on the back with the goal of seeing how the car's actually handled on the hill road at Lang Lang, which is designed to simulate an Australian country road. And there was a real difference between all of these cars, despite all of them having very similar towing capacities and despite most of them being marketed as really capable tow cars for Aussies who want to hitch up a caravan and go around the country. Okay, so... um Without uh, sort of giving it away right at the very beginning, how did all the other non-winners go? All the other non-winners. I like that. If people have memorized the competitors, they can work their way through. Um, So we've got uh, obviously a comprehensive breakdown on the website and then also in the video. Uh, Working our way down the list, the fastest car to 100 k's an hour with the trailer on the back was the Lexus LX600. Uh, This is with the Dyne trailer actively braking it. Um, The slowest to actually hit 100 was the Ford Everest Platinum V6, but it's worth bearing in mind that that's still better than the Biturbo, the Isuzu MUX, the Jeep Grand Cherokee L, the Pajero Sport, the Rexton, the Fortuna, and the Prado. None of those cars actually hit 100 kilometers an hour with that Dyne trailer on the back. Um, In terms of fuel economy, we did a run with and without the Dyne trailer attached and the most economical car was the Land Rover Defender 110 with no trailer on the back. It averaged 7.2 litres per 100 k's around our high-speed bowl, which when you look at the aerodynamics of that car is pretty damn impressive. Most efficient with the trailer on the back was the Ssangyong Rexton, but it's worth bearing in mind that number isn't really an accurate number because all the other cars when we set the cruise control to 90 kilometres an hour sat on 90 the Rexton wasn't able to hold that speed with the trailer attached, it slowed right down, then sped back up. So when you look at the cars that actually managed to complete the test as it was designed, the Isuzu MUX was the most efficient. In terms of how they all perform with the trailer on the back, there were a couple of, I suppose, areas where some cars shone and some struggled. The first is performance, and the road we used has quite a significant hill on it. That's why it's called the Hill Road, Lang Lang. Um, and there was a distinct difference between even some of the four cylinders with with the more powerful ones. You look at a Rexton or an MUX, and although they all successfully completed the challenges, they didn't really do it with flying colours. They felt like they were working very hard up the hill. Um, there was quite a lot of noise, and, and you really were aware of the fact that they were down on power and torque compared to some of the, the punchier ones. The Ford Everest by turbo performed really well in the four-cylinder space, as did the Toyota Fortuna. Um, but it was really clear when you hopped in the more powerful cars that the Defender, the LX600, the Land Cruiser, they just have so much more torque in reserve that when you put your foot down going uphill, I mean, in the case of the Lexus, it was very slippery when we did the testing, but it's still passed with flying colors because it could just deal with the extra weight better. I suppose the the other area where some real differences came out was on the bumpy road section where with a trailer hitched up, obviously, you, you want a controlled ride because if the trailer starts taking control of the car, it starts rocking and the car's not able to control that mass at the back, you're more likely to have an accident because the car's not in control. Uh, there was a, a difference, really significant difference between the Land Rover Defender, which had air suspension, and the rest. Um, the Grand Cherokee L also has air suspension, but it wasn't quite, in fact, it wasn't nearly as well sorted. It was actually one of the the least controlled cars over some of the bumps. And the LX600 has hydraulic suspension, which again, didn't do as good of a job, but that Defender has auto leveling on it. And when we hitched the trailer up, we did have to be a bit careful because the auto leveling wanted to whack the trailer into the spare wheel cover, it's explained in the video. But once it was connected, Paul turned the car on 
and it didn't gradually move up. There was no creaking or groaning. It's as if someone snapped their fingers and all of a sudden the back of the car just lifted up to normal height again. And on the move, it created this incredible stable platform that made the car handle really nicely, feel really controlled. And it really just was effortless in a way that very few other cars were. Um, in terms of the worst performers, we had some trouble with the Grand Cherokee L. It really was quite loose over the bumps and there's footage in the video of the car over one section we actually drove it around there again to make sure we hadn't made a mistake but it really bucks back and forward and and feels quite boaty there are also a couple of cars like the mux and the pajero sport which although they weren't quite as bad as the jeep they still just didn't feel nearly as controlled as we would have liked if you were towing a big trailer on australian country roads so that's where aftermarket providers like iron man or arb come in and could potentially offer a GVM or a GVM upgrade or even just stiffer rear springs that can help stabilize the car with a load on the back. So um, which came out the most successful? So the winner of the test was the Land Rover Defender. Um, It shouldn't come as a great surprise to us that this car has performed strongly so far because – Obviously, it's very expensive for one, but also Land Rover does know what it's doing when it comes to hauling horse floats around pretty parts of the British countryside. But I think even we were a bit surprised by how well it performed alongside the Land Cruiser, the Patrol, some of those cars that are real staples for towing in Australia. It ticked both boxes, the the Defender. It has that really effortless, talky inline-six engine that... At one point, Paul just said it's like there's nothing on the back driving up the hill, which is not something he said about many other cars. And then with the air suspension, it was just so stable and so solid that the the Defender felt the best controlled of pretty much anything out there. Um, The best four-cylinder was the Ford Everest by Turbo. It does everything reasonably well without being standout on any front, but it packs more of a punch than you'd expect given the two-litre displacement. And there are a lot of people that think you need the V6 for towing. I can understand that. I think if I were buying an Everest or a Ranger, I'd want the V6. But if all your budget stretches to is the bi-turbo, you're still getting a car that's very, very capable. I, um, I just have a good question, Scott, because I know I was, if I haven't already mentioned, I was over in India um, at the time, so I wasn't actually a part of this test, unfortunately. But were, were there any results that were surprising or really stood out to you that you haven't already mentioned? Uh, I think one of the surprises was how well the Fortuna performed. Um, it's a car that it doesn't really it doesn't really fit in Australia all that well, even though it really should, because we love Toyotas, we love Hiluxes, we love towing, and we love ute-based SUVs. But between the Land Cruiser, the Hilux, the Prado, it always gets kind of lost. On our test, it actually performed really strongly. The engine just the way it's set up in that car with power mode turned on, packed a decent punch. And the suspension is quite high at the rear, which means that when you load it up, it's almost as if Toyota's accounted for it and the ride was still quite good. Um, There's still plenty with that car that I don't love, the design, the interior, the pricing, et cetera. There's a bit of it that we don't like, but it was a real surprise performer on the tow test. I think the other one was the Sangyong Rexton. Um, This car is rated to tow three and a half tonnes. And with the amount of power it's got, I wouldn't want to be doing that. So I want to make really clear that we're not saying the Rexton is the winner of the test or not saying it's like a Defender. But the car we had had the factory-backed optional Ironman suspension kit fitted to it. Um, And what that essentially means is where sometimes Sangyong cars we've tested have been very comfortable on-road but less capable off it or when they're towing, this actually felt really nicely controlled. Um, The setup, although it does sort of add essentially a a torter suspension setup designed to control the body better with the trailer hitched up, doesn't make the car particularly uncomfortable on-road. And when you do hook up that trailer, it really does make a big difference. The caveat with the Sangyong, as always, is the engine and the tech. Um, The engine just needs a bit more punch if you're going to be towing three and a half tons because it was working seriously hard up that hill with our trailer on the back, and it's a 2.8-ton trailer. I think the other thing is the cruise control not working properly with the trailer on the back is is something that would really annoy me if I owned one of these and I wanted to drive a long distance. If cruise isn't consistent, it sort of removes the purpose of being able to relax a little bit and let the car take charge of your speed. So with those caveats, it was a surprise performer. I think probably the least surprising were the Land Cruiser and the Patrol. Um, for all the stuff the Patrol doesn't do well, and that includes technology, it has the worst camera on test. It made it very hard to 
hitch up a trailer. Um, the V8 engine has got so much grunt. Uh, it's designed to tow, so it feels really nicely balanced between ride comfort and body control, and it's always in charge. With some of these cars, you could feel over the bumps like the trailer was starting to unsettle the car. In the Patrol, it just was rock solid. Similar with the Land Cruiser, although it wasn't quite good enough to topple the Defender. All right, we can head to our YouTube channel to check out the video or the uh, article that Scully has written at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Scott Colley. Awesome. Thanks, Mandy. Okay, well, the Alfa Romeo Tonale would have to be one of the most best-looking SUVs I've seen for quite some time, and you had some time behind the wheel of it as well on our local roads recently. Um, what exactly is the Tonale, and did it impress you? So the Tonale is, uh, it, it's got some big claims around it. It's the most technologically advanced Alpha ever, according to Alpha. And it's a new segment for them. So the Tonale is actually loosely based on the same platform that underpins the Jeep Compass. As we know, Alpha it comes under the Stellantis group, which covers everything from Alpha and Fiat to Jeep. Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, Peugeot, Citroen. And so, you know, we're starting to see the fruits of that collaboration now in terms of the common architectures and technologies and things like that. So the Tonale is basically what Alpha's answer to the likes of the Audi Q3, BMW X1 and Mercedes-Benz GLA. It's one, the first time they've entered the compact crossover segment and it's their new entry-level product. So despite the fact that it's meant to be the most technologically advanced, it's got an electrified powertrain lineup, which is new for the brand, debuts connected vehicle services even it's there it's it's about $25,000 cheaper than a Stelvio so it starts at $49,900 and it competes with everything from your traditional small SUV rivals to even higher end versions of the likes of the Mazda CX-5 and the Toyota RAV4 so it's it's a small ish crossover. It's about four and a half meters long. It's a little bit bigger than some of its rivals, but it it it's really trying to bring that alpha DNA into a new segment and a new form factor. I think it looks really cool. I, would I say it's like the hottest SUV I've ever seen? I think from the front it looks awesome. I love how they've translated the alpha styling to the front. I found that sometimes looking at it from the rear, the way that the boot shape and the length of the overhang all comes together can look a little bit awkward from some angles, especially on the lower grade versions with 18 inch wheels. But I, I do like the look and I love that there are colors. And that's something that mm. I spoke to the um, the head of compact product planning at Stellantis. Um, she said that pre-orders have shown a real skew for bright color options, particularly the alpha red and the Montreal green which is a, a, an expensive $2,500 option only on the flagship model. But I can so tell you, in, yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's, it's the hero, it's the, was the new hero, hero color from the Julia and Stelvio Rangers when they did um, the QV not long ago and the, the GTA models. And it, it's, it's just a really interesting paint to look at in person. It's got, I don't know if you guys remember what a Christmas beetle looks like. When when you're a kid and you get like the bug books and stuff, it looks like a Christmas beetle, but in like the coolest way. And seeing that particular car on the launch parked up, the way that the the paint shimmers in the light and it has this really wonderful like green um, overtone with like a bluish yellow undertone. It's, 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 it's fantastic. So, but all the colors are really cool. There were red ones, blue ones, gray ones on the launch and they all looked really, really cool. And I just love that there's something different. So really, really interesting looking car and really big claims and it for the, from the brand. And it also means a lot for them because it's, a, it's going to probably be one of their key volume drivers. This may become their most popular product. Well, I was just going to say, uh, did Alpha mention to you um, what sort of variants have been most popular on pre-order for Australia? Yeah, so I asked that question because I was really interested to see if people were really taking the taking advantage of that sharp base pricing, or whether they were still optioning up their vehicles, which is typical of Australian buyers apparently, because every every manufacturer says it to us. But yes, there's a seventy percent skew to the Veloce, which is the high end version um, in terms of pre-orders. Uh, whether that how much volume that is, we don't really know. Only 50 have been registered to the end of May, which was actually before the launch. So we'll start seeing customer deliveries coming through June and onwards. So it's already not far off the Julia and Stelvio in terms of volume, and it's only been on sale for a few months. So I don't know wow. where any guess is as good as mine. But yeah, it's from what they told us, the the customer preference has been for pretty much fully decked out versions, but then that's also very typical of a pre-order process. A lot of the people that are willing to put their money down on one and get one of the first ones will typically upspec their cars and 
get the ones that look like the brochures. So that wasn't necessarily that surprising. But um, yeah, they've also mentioned that the pricing has been a really key um, point of interest in terms of what they've gotten from consumer feedback. A lot of people can see, see that there's a premium compact SUV that has a price starting with a four. There are fewer and fewer of them now. That that base pricing is about 10 to 15 grand cheaper than an entry-level BMW X1 or Mercedes GLA. So that puts into perspective the, the value proposition. And in terms of what it includes as standard, you cover all the bases pretty well. It's got a great infotainment system. You get this wonderful 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster, which has great clarity and a few different modes, including uh, a, a layout that mimics classic alpha dials right down to the typeface and like the the trip like the kilometer counter has like the little rollers in them like the rolling numbers which is super it's really cute there's there's a really nice attention to detail with things like that which is very typical alpha and i think that um it it could be a real saving grace for them because i think in at least in australia people have sort of fallen out of love with them it's got a very core loyal buyer demographic and i think people might be willing to take a chance on alfa romeo because this car is so well priced and has a form factor that they're looking for and i think we're hopefully once people start seeing them on the road they'll be like oh what's that and have a look and, and have a drive and you know we might see more of them now i'd love to know how is the Tonale like to drive. I know that you mentioned that it's based on the same platform roughly uh, as the the Jeep Compass. Did it feel like a Jeep Compass to drive? No. <laughs> and I yeah. think for the I think for the better. Look, the the, the latest Jeep Compass is not um, I know we rag on it a lot. I think the main problem with the Jeep Compass is the price. And if anything, the Jeep Compass is almost the same price as this for a smaller car with perhaps less refinement. So I was very interested to get a feel for, because Alpha has a 48-volt hybrid system as standard in this car. It's a 1.5-litre turbocharged four-cylinder petrol engine with a 48-volt electrical system and small battery and small motor and everything. But instead of it being a mild hybrid, they actually call it a hybrid hybrid. And normally, the yes, I, I know. So, I'll, I will get into this. But so, the Stellantis Group has brought out a few 48-volt hybrid products that they say are actual hybrids. And it's because they can drive on electric electrical power. Normally, the distinction that we make between mild hybrids and full hybrids or self-charging hybrids or whatever is the fact that mild hybrids don't offer electric drive purely. They can sometimes assist the engine under load, but they you can't actually drive it or roll around on just electric power. And that's exactly what this car does. So, our, while the drive, the main drive program was through the Adelaide Hills, and we can talk about the dynamics of it and the performance a little bit later, but the the key areas between leaving the airport and going to the accommodation in between the Adelaide and the Hills and then the reverse the next day was that we were driving through the city, which is what a lot of people that buy this car will do. And so in its normal setting and and even more so in the advanced efficiency setting the tonale will really heavily lean upon this electrical architecture so you know the engine will shut off as you're braking at, from about 20 25 k's an hour and if you're very light on the f- throttle on flat ground you can get up to about 40 k's an hour without turning the petrol engine on at all and that electrical system also helps fill in that gap which typically would be turbo lag or hesitation from the dual clutch transmission it's it's got a seven speed dual clutch auto that drives the front wheels exclusively and so you know once you get a, a feel for it because occasionally you might try to demand more power of it and it's it feels a little bit elastic in its response but it's actually a really comfortable and quiet thing to drive around town then once we did the more dynamic program because alpha was you know, shouting from the rooftops about how this is the driver's option or this is a really fun car to drive. The the fundamentals of it are good. I think the, the steering is really nice. It's It's got that typical similar feel to the Julia and the Stelvio in that it's quite quick and direct, but it's also light. So it's easy to drive in town, but it's got a nice connected and, and, and quick feel so that you feel like, you know, oh, this is doing the input to output is, is, is very quick. And the chassis feels really great. It, it's it's very planted. It, it feels great at 100, 110 k's an hour. It it also is very stable and doesn't lean a lot in corners. And it has dynamic talents in it. I just don't feel like the powertrain is up for that whole dynamic premise because the kind of roads that we were driving on were very hilly. So you're constantly demanding a lot out of an engine that doesn't have a whole lot of grunt. Uh, the 
it, the it's only got 118 kilowatts and 240 newton meters so it's almost kind of got that mx5 philosophy where it's like a small car with a small engine and not a whole lot of power so you sort of drive a slower car fast it's it's like an 8.8 second car to 100 which you probably would only achieve in its sporty setting and in the sporty setting in fairness it was actually quite it was it was the performance was adequate it wasn't gonna light your world on fire it wasn't gonna be winning any drag races but for an entry-level product particularly in this segment where a lot of the cars, a lot of the, its competitors at this price point have a 100 to 110 kilowatt hour base model. It didn't feel out of place in that respect. And I don't think the kind of people that are buying the the base Tonale hybrid with the promise of efficiency are going to necessarily be doing B road blasts that often, but there is definitely some dynamic talents. It feels a lot, a, a lot more connected and dynamic than a Jeep compass, for example. And, it definitely has elements that make it feel like an alpha, but I think that given how much, for me particularly, the the Julia, I, I absolutely love driving the Julia. The, that rear drive balance, the really connected steering, the the fact that it feels like it steers on rails. That thing is pure, generally genuinely a beautiful thing to drive. The Tonale doesn't quite live up to that um, because the Giorgio platform is so so great um, dynamically. This doesn't quite do that, but it's definitely not just a reskinned Jeep Compass. Now, I'd love to know uh, what was the economy like for this uh, Tonale hybrid? Because I also know um, there's a, a plug-in hybrid version of that. Um, it's, it's it's meant to be coming to Australia eventually at some point. Is that correct? Yeah, so the, Alpha has confirmed that the plug-in hybrid, which has a 1.3-litre turbo plug-in hybrid system and um, four-wheel drive, so it'll have like a the petrol engine drives the front, the electric motor drives the rear, so similar to like the Mini Countryman and a couple of other plug-in hybrids that we've seen in the past. Um, that'll be coming here in the fourth quarter. Uh, we don't know how much it's going to be priced from, but it has 205 kilowatts in terms of system power and quotes a six and a half second or thereabout zero to 100, so much more hot hatchy-like. Uh, well, Scott drove this that car in Italy and was fairly complimentary of it. So it'll be interesting to see how that translates to the Australian range once we know pricing and everything. Um, but economy-wise, um, Alpha claims 5.6 litres per 100Ks. I don't think we really drove in a manner that was representative of real-world driving conditions in, to accurately assess whether it can achieve that. I will say that during our drive program, which was a lot of uphill, a lot of hard acceleration, a lot of you know high-speed country back roads, we were seeing high sevens to low eights, which is actually quite good when the, given the style of driving we were doing. Uh, and then when we were in doing our return from uh, Mount Lofty, to the Adelaide airport, which saw us doing a lot more downhill and inner city driving. It was doing a lot of work in its um, electric mode, and I don't recall the exact figure, but it would have been closer to six in, in, in this particular loop. So I think the best judgment on economy will be best reserved for when we get the car in Melbourne or Sydney where we can drive it in normal conditions and get a feel for how it performs in those conditions. But it definitely is... I think it'll be capable of getting close to that. I think a six a six liter something is is doable. And given I managed to get sub seven in the Citroen C5 Aircross, which I know is a completely different car, but <laughs> I think the, the the Stellantis powertrain tech is getting there, and I think it, it'll it'll be capable of doing pretty good figures. And and a lot of its rivals are doing similar anyway. That seven to eight realm. So I think that if it can achieve a six, it'll be it'll be pretty good. Now, I'd love to know uh, what's the interior like on this Tonale and what's the interior space like? The interior is interesting. Um, it's definitely got that uh, a look and feel that makes you feel like a you're in a junior version of the Stelvio, for example. There's a lot of elements that are definitely linked right down to those awful, not awful, but the, the there's a really weird graining that Alpha uses on its upper tiers of the cabin in that has like a an aged leather look and I don't like it personally. I prefer like the, the smooth leather look, but that's a question for another day. I've already um, talked to their product planners about it. I don't know if they'll actually listen to me, but the um, you've got a nice, uh, you sit in the car. It's I felt that with the Stelvio, the seating position was quite high. You definitely feel elevated, but you don't feel like you're sitting on top of it. And the way that the, the center 
console or the, the at least the dashboard is the touchscreen and everything is all angled towards the driver so it feels like a, a driver's cockpit that's housed around you um it's definitely not the it's not a class leader for cabin quality or tactility, but it's definitely not far from the worst. I think that a BMW X1, for example, has a far nicer cabin in terms of its finishings, but the Alpha does a really good job at feeling a cut above some of the mainstream stuff and, and also being competitive with you know what's on offer from Audi, Mercedes. Mercedes particularly, the GLAs, I feel the cabin is not, really a Merc cabin and um, even the Lexus UX has a lot more hard plastics and less of a, an upmarket vibe compared to some of the other other cars in its range. Space-wise, it's definitely a little bit bigger than you might expect. So Alpha apparently designed the Tonale's cabin to have four 1.9 meter tall adults in at the same time. Would I be doing that often in this car? I don't know. <laughs> but... <laughs> I did have a, a, a near six-footer in the back seat at one point, not behind me personally, but behind a front passenger, and they had plenty of room. I think for me at six-one-ish, if I was to sit in the back for a long period of time, particularly behind my own driving position, it would be snug but not com- uncomfortable. I think with in terms of kids and things like that, you'll be fine. It's got Isofix and top tethers and you know, there's good leg room so that the you know a big child seat should be able to fit in the back fine. But the there's a, a rising um, shoulder line that tapers the window up. And so if you've got little kids that can't necessarily see out very well, that might be an issue. And the the roof line sort of starts tapering down towards the back as well. So it's just, you know, if you're carrying someone in the back that's quite tall, they might have to slouch a bit a little bit or lean their their head over if their if their head's getting closer to the headliner. The boot measures the boot measures liters um but <laughs> mainly because the um the australian model has a standard fit space saver spare which they don't have an exact boot volume figure for yet so the global version of this offers 500 liters um with the seats up and 1550 liters with them folded which is competitive i ran the numbers it's got a little bit less than something like an audi q3 or a bmw x1 at least on paper but it quotes more volume than a mercedes-benz gla or even a volvo xc40 but Speaking of the Volvo and the BMW, I think the BMW and the Volvo uh, have better backseat accommodation. Uh, the, the X1 has a bigger boot in terms of literage um, and the Volvo is – I've sat in the back of a Volvo XC40 before and it genuinely felt like I was in a much larger car. So I think if you're going to be carrying around big like lanky teenagers or you've got friends that are 1.85 metres, for example, you may need to look up to a, a Stelvio or perhaps even get the Volvo or something like that. But it's got a nice balance of, of practicality and, and, and design in there. I really like the new infotainment system um, from Alfa Romeo. They've reskinned the Uconnect 5 interface to look like an Alfa system and offer an array of new features. Um, it's got really nice quality to the resolution, uh, response to inputs and things like that. There's an array of menus and cool graphics, so you can see, like the trip computer and the driving modes ones, cool, bring up cool graphics of the car. Uh, you can go through a number of things. I really love the digital instrument cluster. It's a and a really interesting take on that technology that makes it alpha, but also has a level of adjustability and configurability that is in line with stuff from some of the German marks. And it also has uh, a three a three year subscription to Alpha My Alpha Connect, which is a range of remote and net based services. So you can you know unlock and lock the car, locate the car, send your destination to the infotainment system before you walk outside, um, and you can even use your Google no not Google Amazon Alexa Home system to toggle settings in the car um, wirelessly, which is really cool. And that subscription is, as I said, is three years and there'll be a subscription-based model once those expire, but they haven't released pricing on that yet. The other thing I will mention around costs is that the servicing is particularly expensive. Um, all up for five years, you're looking at about three and a half grand in, in servicing, which is quite a lot. And it's more than... It's more than Audi and BMW, significantly more than BMW in particular, but it's still less than Mercedes, thank God, because Mercedes will charge you four and a half grand to service a GLA over five years, which is nonsense in my opinion. But three and a half for the Alpha, you know, I guess they perhaps are going to argue that their their purchase price is 
quite cheap and they and the you know the hybrid system reduces running costs in terms of fuel economy so they, they might char- choose to charge more for servicing and given you've got a very complex drivetrain there's going to be elements to that but that's a lot for servicing especially now when a lot of brands are trying to reduce that so it's a very interesting car i liked it i think that while it has a lot of good aspects and really good points and and points of difference as well in a in a segment that is really just more of the same from a lot of brands there are still a few fundamental things that are drawbacks which is very typical of alphas i feel like you know they'll be really great to drive but you know not super spacious in the back when you think of like the julia or the selvia for example i think the tonale has a really nice balance of comfort and a a level of driver involvement that's that's quite pleasing and you know if you're driving it around the city often you can like thread it through city streets and feel like you're really connected and, and doing something it's all you know that whole saying about driving a slow car fast or you know that kind of thing it's got that vibe about it but then once you get out into the country and you need to demand a little bit more of it i think that 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 particular drivetrain feels underdone i'll be really keen to see how the plug-in hybrid feels unfortunately we're not getting the two liter turbo still that um has been confirmed for other markets with about 180 190 kilowatts that i think would really give it some punch but I guess we have to work with what we've got. And I think um, my recommendation for buyers looking, considering this car is that, you know, if you're looking at a, a Q3, an X1, GLA, X, XE40, and you want something a little bit different that's still spacious, still nice to drive and, and fairly efficient, I think that this is definitely worth a look. Would I say buy it sight unseen? No, I think you need to, with any car, you need to actually get in it and get a feel for it. But I think there's a lot of, it's it's promising. And I think that the Alpha has been really smart to, position it in the market so sharply because it means that more people are likely to have a look at it now and it definitely it seems like a bargain you know you're saving 10 to fifteen thousand dollars off a base bmw or mercedes so you know you can get something different that looks really cool and it's also it'll do all the things that most of those other cars can do as well so i think it's a a good showing it's not perfect but it's definitely it's definitely promising Awesome stuff. We can't wait to uh, read your full review, which is coming soon at carexpert.com.au. That wraps up another Car Expert podcast. Where's the team off to next week, Joe? I see you're doing something. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to be driving the Toyota GR Corolla Maurizio edition next week in Victoria, which is very exciting. It's that weird two-seater one with a massive um, bar in the back and it's a bit more focused. It's basically a Corolla GT3 RS is, is, is what nice. I understand it to be. Um, <laughs> Scott is taking over my role as Mr. Korea and going to Korea to drive or have a look at the new Kia EV9, which is really exciting. And Jack, you'll be off to drive the base versions of the Volkswagen Amarok next week, which is cool. Jade's also going to be headed to Bali shortly to have a look at the new Lamborghini Huracan Sterato, which is the raised up rally looking version which i think is super cool like very jealous of her so quite a few things for some of us next week um i think paul's going to get lonely here by himself with his thoughts (laughs) plenty to talk about indeed and uh we've got some cars coming up next week as well jack yeah, so now in terms of cars, in uh, Melbourne next week, we have a, a Volkswagen uh, Tiguan Allspace uh, 110 TSI Life. From my understanding, that's the, the base model, isn't it? So then we also have um, the Subaru Crosstrek uh, 2.0L, and then we also have two Mazda 6s, continuing the Mazda 6 trend, it seems, at the moment. So we've got a, a Mazda 6 uh, G35 GTSP sedan, and then a Mazda 6 G25 Touring sedan. Now, we do have something very special coming up. We have a, a GWN uh, Tank 300, that boxy um, off-roader. So I'm very excited to, to see that. That's going to be in Melbourne as well. And then ap- apart from Melbourne, we only have one other car, um, which is in Sydney at this stage. It's a Skoda Scala Ambition, which is uh, the base model. I think Melbourne's all carred out after the um, SUV mega test anyway. It's probably good to have a bit of a break. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that wraps up this week's podcast. Jack Quick and James Wong, thank you. Thanks, Mandy.